Welcome to the NJ Criminal Podcast and part two in this series. I asked you a couple minutes ago about whether or not you held any stock in, you know, whether or not someone could, you know, believe a lie and then um, come out as being, you know, not deceptive or truthful. What do you, do you hold any stock in, uh, you know, these this idea that somebody can mess around with the control tests, the biting the tongue or doing holding their breath, doing these things during the control tests, questions that would then enable them to, you know, quote unquote, beat beat the polygraph. Right. You know, anyone can sit on the polygraph and wiggle their toes and their fingers and the test will be inconclusive. You can't make a result. So right. we're not talking about that. They've done an awful lot of studies on just what you're asking to see. Are there techniques that people can utilize that even though they're not telling the truth, they come out with a truthful result? And all of the studies have come to the same conclusion. Obviously, there's physiological things that you can do. You can, you know, what you mentioned, right? But what they came up with is you're sitting on a pad. So if you're squeezing your sphincter muscle, which is one of the things, if you're stepping on a tack in your shoe, if you're moving your feet, if you're breathing a different way, there's sensors that we now use to show that a person is doing something to affect the outcome of the test. And sometimes even truthful people try to do it uh, just because they're afraid. Right, right. So that is an mm -hmm. invalid test when you see that. The other bigger point about it is all of the studies show that unless you hire uh, some unscrupulous polygraph examiner and go to their office and actually practice taking the test with the examiner giving them feedback. This is how much to step on the tack. This is how much to mm. squeeze uh, a certain muscle in your body. This is how much and when they should do it. I mean, it's so complicated that what they found was unless you hire somebody and go and practice on an actual polygraph, Anything you do causes you to fail the test. You come out as a deceptive person. Right, if the polygraph examiner is truthful in their report. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So you, you, uh, you graduated from Rutgers in 1974, BA in sociology. It look, looks, looks like you went right into the state police in September of 74. Yes. And you ended up becoming a polygraph examiner in 81. How did, you, how did that happen? You know, I went in. How did you come about? Like, how did you, uh, how did you get the opportunity? I should yeah. say to, I, you know, I was be an examiner. Lucky in college, I really didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't have a great career path, um, but I heard some uh, students talking about taking the state police test, and I went with them, took it, and uh, once I got involved with that, I thought it was a fantastic. I loved it. When I got on, I was on the road for five years, basically, and. Um, now, where are you from originally? Uh, Sussex County. Got yeah. it. Okay. And, uh, you know, you're stationed at various stations throughout the state. They don't put you too close to home, especially in the beginning. So you're always somewhere away from the area where you live. But, you know, I didn't really personally enjoy writing tickets. And uh, there was there is no quota. I'll just say that it's you work with the same group of people every day, same hours, same weather conditions. If everyone else is is uh, out there participating and they're doing this level of activity and you're way below that, you know, there's got to be a reason for that. Right. So that it's not a quota at all, but it, it's a rating system. Make sure you're doing your job. But I didn't really appreciate writing tickets. So 
what we were allowed to do in the state police was if you wanted to take an investigation and try to resolve a burglary or a theft, you know, as a road trooper, you're probably not going to be given, you know, major caseloads, you know, a, you know, a sexual assault or, you know, bank robbery or something. But you could work on thefts and burglaries. And I enjoyed doing that. So in um, throughout the last few years that I was on the road, I started doing a lot more criminal investigations and getting some results. But then we used to live at the barracks and we lived there for two days at a time and you were off for two days at a time and you work with a different set of people there. And that was fantastic. And everybody really liked working on the road under those conditions. The union said we were working a lot more hours than other police agencies across the country. And they really fought for us to get an eight hour day to make it more equitable money wise, I guess. But when they did, what they found was a lot of um, a lot of the troopers, the schedule they came up with, it was horrendous. And you were just working. You got like one weekend off every six weeks. You know, you were working nine out of 10 midnights in a row. And so guys started looking for other jobs. Yeah, you can't sustain no, that. It was really rough. And they've changed it now and they have a much better schedule. But at the time, I was one of the ones that said I'd like to get a job where maybe I'm working Monday through Friday and I get a troop car and I'm off the weekends. And, you know, that's kind of pie in the sky. You're not going to really get sure. that. But the polygraph unit had an opening and uh, I put in for it and I thought, I'm not going to get that, but at least they'll know I'm looking for some kind of criminal investigative job when the next one comes out to say, oh, we see you had an interest. You put in for polygraph. So my background in college was kind of biology and psychology, which I didn't realize how much that would help me getting into polygraph. That's what it's all about. And I never thought benefits of a liberal arts education. Yeah, right. And I yeah. thought, you know, I'm not going to get this job. There's, I think, 38 troopers put in for that job when I did across the state. And a lot of them at 15 years in, they were already detectives. They knew how to interview, which is a, one of the major things. So, you know, I was, I was okay with that. But it ended up that I got selected. And uh, now, Who's this Jerry Lewis guy? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, he's got five years on the road, and um, we're sending yeah. him to polygraph school. So for me, it was a huge honor. Right. So I fly on the plane out to Chicago to this polygraph school. And there was maybe four or five schools throughout the country that you could go to different schools, different schools. You're still going to run the test the same, but different instructors. Mm -hmm. So when I get to Chicago, you know who Woody Harrelson is from Cheers? the movie. I do. You know what his dad is famous for? No, I do not. His father was actually died on death row in Texas. He was a contract killer. And he assassinated the hanging judge in Texas. A drug dealer was coming up for sentencing and hired. How do I not I know this? Woody Harrelson's mm -hmm. dad. It was actually the second person, but he assassinated this judge and he was caught for it and uh, died on death row. Well, that was Woody's dad, Charles Harrelson. Well, Charles had a brother named Len Harrelson, Leonard Harrelson. And that's who taught me polygraph. Woody's <laughs> uncle. <laughs> I wow. guarantee he had the same that? mindset as his hitman brother because, man, that was a tough score. What was that? Seven, that was the seven-week seven course that you, early 80s? Yes, you were 80, out in January Chicago. of 81 in Chicago in the winter. We were never allowed to come home at any time. Your spouse could come out for uh, one day, Saturday, uh, on the fifth weekend. Wow. And he kicked one person out of every class. He didn't care if you had 100 average on the test. And 
he wasn't a very good instructor as far as explaining. We learned how to run a test, but as far as interpreting the results and uh, dealing with people, that kind of thing, he wasn't really very good at that. So the problem for me was I flew out to Chicago thinking this would be the coolest job in the world. I'm just going to carry this box around and, hey, bring a guy in. I'll tell you if he's telling the truth or not. Man, it's going to be fun. Yeah. But I actually yeah. flew back on the plane with a lot of doubts about whether the polygraph really was as accurate as I was hoping it was going to be. And luckily, when I came back to the state police uh, here, we only had uh, three examiners when I got back for the whole state. Our backlog was about six weeks. So we had two to three people scheduled a day for the next six weeks. And that continued basically throughout my time in polygraph. So it was a matter of me going with other guys to pick up on the techniques and actually how to sit in there and talk to people and, you know, produce the best results. But it was really a still quite of a learning experience you have to come back well you, you went back and did an advanced yes. class and then you went on and did some training with the fbi it looks like you've you've uh attended a number of polygraph trainings over the years qualified as an expert yeah. uh in superior court etc have you taught polygraph not actually testing? teaching polygraph but in all my classes of i teach interviewing and things in all those classes i bring up what I've learned, you know, about the polygraph, but I don't actually instruct yeah. any of the schools for polygraph. Well, that leads me to the, I guess, the next topic I wanted to talk to you about, and that is interviewing uh, and interrogation. And you did um, also uh, become very well known throughout the state police uh, with regard to a course you developed in the 80s on interviewing. Um, and, you know, reviewing your, your CV, I mean, you've, you've taught this course to thousands of law enforcement personnel all around the United States, Canada, and now since your retirement um, in 2000 have developed uh, a, a program that you've, you've actually, I think, trademarked, right, the Tactical Interviewing Program. So I wanted to, you know, have you tell us about that, and um, I'm, I'm really interested in in your take on how a, an interview should be conducted so that you find the truth um, from your interviewee. Uh, and, you know, you've said a couple times, I think you've written a few articles, that the phrase, the truth lies within. Tell me about that. You know, it's very interesting because just to, to go back to what I just said about coming back from polygraph school, I wasn't really sure how accurate it was. So for me, every day, two to three people a day on a case, I was worried, like other guys can do it and other examiners are confident. I'm not really that confident. I guarantee I was more nervous than the suspect that was brought in to be tested. He'd be shaken and I'd be shaken because the last thing I wanted to do was run the test because then I had to look at it and give an answer. But if I could get the person before the test or whatever to admit to what they did or some like the only day that I could come home and get you don't even have to do the polygraph then well that's it and that was my goal <laughs> you know and I, I'm kind of ashamed in a way but I was like let's just cut to the chase yeah, I would say this you know other examiners went to different schools they got better training than I did the guys in my unit had better training than I got when I went um, so other examiners did not experience the doubts that I had, and they couldn't really understand it. They'd go in and run a test and give an answer and go home and sleep. But I was like, I'm not sure 
they're doing it right. Yes, I believe they're confident, but if I do it, am I? So the only time I could sleep at night was if someone admitted that they did it. So then I knew that the person did it. They were deceptive and they admitted to it. But if I cleared someone and said they're truthful, was I positive? No. If I said somebody was not telling the truth, was I positive? I wasn't positive, but it was the best answer I could give. And I was keeping a record of every person I polygraphed, what my answer was, and then feedback. If it turned out I was not correct, I was going to think, you know, I'm going to have to leave this unit because I'm really not that that good at it when everyone else is. So I really had a lot of self-doubt. So that's where the interviewing to me was like, how can I walk in a room, just be told a set of circumstances and bring three different people in? We never specialized in any type of crime. It could be anything from a theft, a white collar, a bribe, a sexual assault, a homicide. And it could be any person between from 14 years up. So there, I wasn't specialized in any crime, any age group. I wasn't just doing juveniles or and it was like, what, how do I sit across from someone and talk to them and figure out if they're telling the truth or not? And what can I rely on? All of the classes back then were about body language. And I would go to these classes because I had an, I had a, uh, huge need to be right when I'm talking to people and, and I would listen to these lectures and I took everything to heart and I took notes and I knew how to do it. And I would go into an interview. I'm like, according to everything I see here with body language, a person should be this, but my end end result is the opposite. So it was really any technique that you taught me in less than a week's time, I've already done 15 in-depth two to three hour interviews. And I, within a week's time, I could tell you if that was accurate or not. And I learned early on body language is not accurate in any way for determining truthfulness or deception. And that's what everyone was taught. Eye contact, this. I'll give you a couple statistics that they did a lot of studies on this recently. Now, I learned this in 1981. I can't sit across from someone and look at the way they cross their legs. They're not looking at me. They're this and that. All you're reading is stress. I knew that in 81, but nobody would listen to me. Nobody cared. Uh, You know, they would still run the test after and get the answer there. But they did a study in, uh, you know, in the last 15 years or so. And they tested people off the street had no training in assessing someone's honesty. So they would let them watch videos of known truthful or deceptive people. And they found those people were about 54% accurate, even though they really thought their skills were honed on, on reading people, 54%. Yeah, it's not very now, good. it's flipping coin. Then they brought in mm-hmm. experienced law enforcement officials that have been doing interviews for over 20 years who were confident in their abilities. And then what they found was interesting. Their accuracy, 54%, exactly the same. Here's the difference. The, the untrained civilians believed too many people that were lying. The experienced police officers did not believe too many people that were telling the truth. So they had opposite errors, but the same accuracy. Here's the well, because they were going into it with a preconceived yeah, notion. You know, you get on the job and you talk to a lot of people and they're not telling you the truth and you just lose your, um, you go into interviews thinking people are probably lying, right? Especially if they're suspects in a case. You just kind of expect that, I guess, on a subconscious level and you add in the behaviors that kind of reinforce that. 
you know, and the average person off the street probably isn't that cynical. So they found that the accuracy, though, was only 54%. One of the problems is that, get this, the more the person tries to convince the interviewer that they're being honest, whether they are being honest or are lying, the more they try to convince someone, they'll always be perceived to be more deceptive. There's no way once really? a person is accused and they start trying to defend themselves and convincing the interviewer that they really are truthful, even if they are truthful, the interviewer always thinks they look more deceptive. So if you look at it that way, the average person coming in to take a poly uh, to do an interview, right? Mm -hmm. If the if the interviewer is judging them on body language i'm saying just on body language they have a 54 percent chance of they're being truthful or being believed right but they have a 46 percent chance of not being believed and then if the detective or the interviewer starts to go after them and, and say hey i'm not really not believing you and they try to convince the um, interviewer they actually will be believed less so so it it perpetuates the right. and then, incorrect finding by the yep the other yeah. thing that i found was like i knew that early on i didn't know what the right answer was or how to do it but i knew that i couldn't rely on the observations of how the person came into the room the other thing is let's say you have a theft at a gas station taken out of the safe so you got a young guy that's been there a few years he knows the owner they're friends another guy's been there a year seems reliable then you have the new guy right who's only been there a few months and his friends come in and hang out and they got earrings and uh, they're suspected they probably do drugs and stuff and if he didn't do it one of his friends did it while he was there so the first person mm -hmm. comes in and the detective will say hey thanks for coming in appreciate it you know the routine down there get a cup of coffee i just want to know what goes on the second one comes in it's a little sterner you know, I understand you've been there for a year, but, you know, in that year, you could have figured out a way to steal the money. So I just want to interview you here and find out, you know, do you know anything about the stolen money? So it's a little bit more. When that last guy came in, mm -hmm. hey, have a seat. Take that hat off when I'm talking to you. Look at me over here. I'm going to be asking you some questions. When I ask you questions, don't think I don't know the answers and don't you try to lie to me. Now, right, that aggressive bad that's the way persona. just the natural evolution of a detective might fall to interviewing these three people because he already sees who's the most likely suspect but the problem is the first guy's got no stress he's relaxed leaning back drinking a cup of coffee right so he's he looks calm and truthful the second guy not too much stress he looks fairly good but that last guy as soon as you open up your interview with comments like that he already feels like oh my gosh maybe i'm not going to be believed here and he exhibits a lot of stress through his body language and then the detective it's will say look see you can you can he's yeah. nervous he must be deceptive and what they don't really understand is and i i was guilty of this i'm sure is you're reading yourself you're reading the reaction to the way you treated the person yeah do you think anything uh, has to do with the ego of the interviewer yeah i mean there's a lot of interview you know in my teachings i say it's really not about them versus us and it's not about them beating us it's not personal once you let it be personal a person can defeat you if they lie to you and get away with it you feel defeated 
But if you look at it, like it's not personal. He's if he did something, he comes in here, tries a lie. It's my job if I can to try to figure that out. You know, but it's not personal. When we make it personal, then your ego gets involved. And the biggest thing that I teach is we are not here to judge what the person did. Which you have to get out of that mindset of, you know, we get involved with some horrific, as you do, uh, cases. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard to look at somebody that you think committed a crime like that. So you, part of you almost has an innate desire to punish the person, you know. As you're talking to them mm -hmm. and treat them a little bit rougher than you might, you know, not bad, but just a little more pointed, a little bit less social, maybe something like that. But, you know, our job is to figure out if this person is being truthful. It's not about judging the person. That's for the court system and what the punishment is going to be later. And once you take that out of the equation, you know, the egos and the judging of the person and wanting the person to, you know, be punished for something horrific. Um, your eyes are much clearer and you can evaluate all of the evidence before you much, much easier. And you don't start off. You know, the biggest thing is that if we treat everyone the same, then you see the differences because truthful people act different than people that are lying to you right from the time you say hello. But if you treat people you think are probably the suspect, differently than you treat someone that you think is probably truthful you're never going to see the differences because you're creating the reaction in the people because of the way you're treating them but if you can get yourself to run your interview in a way that you treat everyone exactly the same whatever your personality or nature is then the truthful people come in and give you one set of behaviors and one set of types of statements and answers Whereas the deceptive people will come in and give you a totally different picture. So, in other words, let's say you have a truthful person, any person that comes in for an interview. The first question is, mm -hmm. do you know why you're here? Right? So, truthful people mm -hmm. go right to the issue. Yeah, I'm here because money was taken where I work. I'm here because somebody's claiming that I sexually assaulted someone. I'm here... And they go right to the issue. But people have something to hide to that question. You often hear, you know, I'm not really sure. They're gathering information mm -hmm. because they have a decision to make. But I'm not really sure. Can you explain to me why I'm here? So right away. They want to know how much exactly, you know. That's my first question. And I already, on my piece of paper, in my mind, depending how they answer that, they're getting a check mark, you know, on one side of the paper or the other. The next thing is right in the beginning. I'm talking in the first five minutes. Right? Before you've done your background form or anything else, you're treating everybody the same. You ask that question, you know why you're here, so you get a, maybe a different response. The next thing is, well, you're here because, you know, you're a suspect in this theft, or you should hear from every person some type of denial. Because once you feel you're suspected of something or accused of something, you know, your natural inclination is to make a denial. So you're going to listen to the denials that people make, and often within those first five, ten minutes of your interview, it gives you a pretty good indication if you're just doing an interview, you know, without the polygraph, and you're going to try to come up with a decision. You know, truthful people deny the crime in one way. Receptive people deny it in a different way.
For more information about criminal defense in New Jersey, go to hornerlaw.com. That's H-O-E-R-N-E-R law.com.